Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. We're in message uh, number eight, down Route 66. We're somewhere around mountain time zone. Uh, we've been going across country, and now we're, we're, we're moving toward the West Coast. And, or if, you're, if you started on the West Coast, we're moving toward the East Coast, whichever coast you want to move toward. But we're moving down the road on this, and we're going to look tonight at why four Gospels. Why not just one? Why not just have one gospel? Wouldn't one gospel writer be enough? But there are four witnesses given to us in the New Testament. You turn the page on the book of Malachi, there's 400 years of silence, and now you have four gospel messages about the life of Christ. The English word gospel comes from the Anglo-Saxon word Godspell. And it means a story about God or a good story or a story of good news. The four Gospels record the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. They are not biographies in the truest sense of a biography because they do not trace every day or every year of his life. In fact, we deal with the birth of Christ and then we jump from there except for one incident. When he was 12, we jumped from there all the way to the time when he was 30 and the last three to three and a half years of the earthly life of Christ. And so the New Testament is this gospel of a new covenant. It is the completion of all the prophecies, all the promises, all the forward looking of those of the Old Testament. It is what the writer of Hebrews talks about. They, they looked forward to something, but they didn't realize it. And those at the time of Christ realize it. And we, on this side of the cross, look back and see the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises now coming to fruition in these four books. The subject of the Gospels is the Lord Jesus. The subject is not a man. It's not a prophet. It's not a teacher. It's the Lord Jesus, God's Son. The object is the message of salvation. God wants us to understand how people come to saving faith. The picture is the ultimate reign and rule of Christ. It begins with his birth and it ends with him ascended and ruling on high and the saints gathered around in worship. The main characters of this book, obviously there's one, and that is Jesus, but two other significant characters in the Gospels are Paul and Peter, and you could add John as well because he wrote the book of Revelation. Now, what are the differences? One is Matthew, Mark, and Luke share a common point of view. They are called the synoptic Gospels, S-Y-N, not S-I-N. Uh, they are the synoptic Gospels. They share something in common. They have a common point of view. Most of Matthew, Mark, and Luke deal with the Galilean ministry of Jesus. And about, uh, if you go to Israel, you will hear this as you're out on the boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, that within eyesight of sitting on a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, you can see the terrain and the land and the cities where Jesus performed 70 to 75% of his earthly ministry is all within your sight. 
And most of that has not changed in the way it looks from the way it was 2,000 years ago. In fact, if you take away the modernization of Tiberias, basically, when you look out on that sea and you look across those hills, it looks much like it would have looked 2,000 years ago when Jesus would have walked through those valleys and around those hills. And you see all the things, the Mount of Beatitudes, and you see all the areas where the pigs ran off the cliff, you can see that. It's all still there. It all happened right there. And so these three gospel writers concentrate on that particular part of the ministry of Christ. Uh, John focuses more on his ministry in Judea. And uh, so there's a little bit of difference in these gospels and in where they focus their ministry. And obviously John spends a great deal of time focusing on the last week of the life of Jesus. Secondly, the synoptic gospels are filled primarily with parables. Now there, there are parables all the way through and there, there are miracles in, other, in, uh, in John's gospel and in the other gospels. But primarily when you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you're, you're studying a lot of parables. The majority of the parables of Jesus are actually found in the gospel of Luke. And, and then John focuses on the miracles because the miracles were signs to validate that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. And so John is presenting a case of Christ being the Messiah, and he has filled it with the I Am statement. So we're going to spend a lot of time reading in the Gospels tonight. First, I want you to look at John. We're going to look at Matthew 24 at the end of the message. We're going to look a little bit in the Gospel of Luke, at the first chapter of Luke. But we're going to trace through some of these statements as we go through this message in, in this hour. All right, John 21, John 21, 25. Because it's only a, a, maybe two and a half to three months of the earthly ministry of Jesus that's really recorded in the gospel. There were many other things that happened that they did not write down. But here's what John says at the end of his gospel. John 21, verse 25. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Now here's what you have in these four Gospels. All four of them have two events in the life of Christ that all four record. One is the feeding of the 5,000. And the other is Peter, uh, Jesus walking on water. Not Peter walking on water, Jesus walking on water. These books are not contradictory. People have tried to write books and say, well, this Gospel conflicts with this gospel. It contradicts this gospel. They are complementary. Let, let me explain it this way. When Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are writing about an event in the life of Jesus, they are like eyewitnesses to an event. If you put people on a stand to testify under oath, what did you see and what did you hear? They would see and hear different things depending on perspective where they were standing, what they, I saw the face of Jesus. Maybe they were behind Jesus. So, so they're giving their perspective on the same events. And so when you see little differences in the way things are done, it, it was their perspective, what they heard, what they saw, but they do not conflict with each other. They complement each other. 
So let's look at the four Gospels and their focus on Jesus. Matthew, as you know, primarily wrote to a Jewish audience. That's why he deals so much with the begats and the begats and the begats. And there was a lot of begatting going on. Kind of like a lot of the staff in this church. I don't know what the deal is. They're just begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so. Must be in the water. I don't know. It's, uh... But he presents Jesus as Messiah and King. Why? Because he's trying to convince his Jewish friends that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the prophecies relating to Messiah. So Matthew is writing to them, and he talks about the kingdom of heaven, and Jesus is portrayed in this book as the mighty king. He is portrayed as the mighty king. Mark, on the other hand, who is writing on behalf of Simon Peter, who dictated this letter to Mark, Mark is writing to primarily a narrow Gentile audience. Uh, it is a gospel of action. You find the word immediately in the gospel of Mark over 40 times. Uh, Mark's in a hurry. I mean, you, you can kind of see that Mark is influenced by Simon Peter because Simon Peter was always in a hurry to say something or do something. And so when Mark writes it, Mark is giving you the Cliff Notes version. I mean, he goes immediately to this and, and immediately Jesus did this and immediately this happened. Why? Because he's, he's scurrying through it. He, he's got the fast-paced version of the life of Jesus. And he reveals Jesus as the humble servant. Turn, if you would, to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. There are so many great stories in Mark chapter 10, but if you want to know what a great story is and a great statement is, it's found in Mark 10 and verse 43. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. One of the things that makes Mark a great book, it reminds us that that life is not about who can serve us, but how we can serve others. Uh, we exemplify that when we do things like Candy Fest, when we do Freedom Fest, when we serve in the preschool area, when we serve so that people can sit and worship and we take our times to do that. We are exemplifying Christ in the most real way when we serve others who sometimes can't, won't, or never will say thank you or can't pay us back for it. We just do it out of a heart of service and out of a heart of gratitude. It is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. And servants are kind because they are willing to serve other people. Then you have Luke, who is addressing a broader Gentile audience. Luke would have been the most educated, the most sophisticated Greek is found in the Gospel of Luke. He was a researcher. He was a historian. In Luke chapter 1, if you would turn there, just turn a few pages to Luke chapter 1 and verse 1. Luke is the kind of guy that would have written the research paper that would have made everybody else fail. 
I mean, he'd have gotten the A and the preacher, he'd have been the teacher's pet. He'd have passed his PhD verbal and written. He'd have passed it with flying colors and the rest of us would have been pleading for the mercy of God uh, just to remember anything that we had studied. Luke was a precise historian. Why? He was a doctor. And a doctor has to have precision to do their work. You know, you could say it's a general surgeon, but I want to tell you, when they stick the knife in you, that's not general. <laughs> it's specific. They're going to deal with a specific thing. They're not just saying, hey, let's just cut and see what happens. They're being specific. And so, like a surgeon, Luke is dissecting and evaluating and probing into all that he has heard about Christ, Luke chapter 1, inasmuch as, have, as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So what you know right there is Luke was not an eyewitness to these things. He's gone and interviewed people who were there. He's gone and talked to people who saw these things happen. He's taken meticulous notes. He's journaled all of this. And now as God begins to put it together in his heart and mind, and he writes it down, he says, It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Look at what he's saying there. He says, I, I've got it, everything, it's excellent. He's excellent, it's consecutive order, exact truth, so that you can know, not so you can hope, not so that you can have a hunch, so you can know that these things are true. And the key verse in the Gospel of Luke is Luke 19 and verse 10. The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. Luke is a gospel of good tidings, and he presents Jesus as the compassionate Son of Man, which, by the way, was Jesus' favorite title for himself. When Jesus talked about himself, he most often said, I'm the Son of Man. The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. John focuses on the deity of Christ, the Son of God. He wrote to strengthen the saints. And so when John is talking, Luke talks about the Son of Man. John talks about the Son of God. Now I want us to look at the Gospel of John, and I want us to begin in chapter 6. And I'll, I want us to look at these I am sayings. Because they are pivotal sayings. Here's why. If you're talking to a person that doesn't know Christ, or if you're talking to someone from a faith that is not a Christian faith, if you're dealing with somebody that has other opinions about Jesus, here's the bottom line on what John is saying. John is saying either Jesus is who he says he is, or he is a liar. C.S. Lewis said when Jesus said what he said, he would have to, be, have to be a lord, liar, or lunatic. He'd have to be crazy to say the things he said. He'd have to be deceitfully lying about the, the things he said. Or he has to be who he said he was. And so when you go through the I am sayings, you see Jesus saying, 
I, I, I think I am. I hope I am. My daddy told me I was. My mama told me I was. No, he's saying I am. I am because I am. Now, where did the I am sayings first come? All the way back in the Old Testament. You tell them I am sent you. So when Jesus said, I am, guess what the first thing that came to their mind was? The God who appeared to Moses at the burning bush said, I am. Now here comes one in flesh who says, I am. John 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. That verse is a great verse for people that don't seem to be satisfied with life. Jesus said, I can meet the needs. I can satisfy the hunger, the thirsting, the longings of your life. John chapter 8 and verse 12. Jesus again spoke to them. John 8 and verse 12. Jesus spoke to them and said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness but will have the light of life. There's a lot of darkness in this world. There's a lot of stuff that's scary about this world in which we live. It's frightening. It's a world filled with darkness and, and evil is dark. And Jesus said, I've come to turn the light on. I've come to be the light in a dark world. It's, this world is shrouded in darkness and, and I've come to reveal myself, to, to show myself as the light of the world. Chapter 8 and verse 18. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. You see, if somebody has a problem with Jesus saying he's the Son of God, then they have a problem with God the Father. And so they say, well, we worship the God that you worship. We just don't believe that Jesus... Are you listening? We worship the God you worship. We just don't believe that Jesus is the emphatic, definite article, the emphatic Son of God. Well, Jesus said, the Father who sent me testifies about me. So they can say, well, we all believe in the same God. The Muslims believe in the same God. The, the, the Mormons believe in the same God. The, the Jews believe in the same God. The Christians believe in the same God. Jesus said, if you believe in God, you're going to believe in me. Now, I don't know who some folks are worshiping, but they're not worshiping the God who revealed himself in the New Testament. Because the God who revealed himself in the New Testament, Jesus Christ, God in flesh, said, the Father verifies I am who I am. Nobody else can say that. Mohammed can't say it. Nobody else can say it. No so-called Messiah that's come along since then can say it. Only the Son of God can say that. John 8, 23. You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I say to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, I'm it, I'm the one, unless you believe that, you will die in your sins. Now you don't need to be a Greek scholar to figure that out. Jesus said, if you don't believe in me, you'll die in your sins. John chapter 9, verse 5. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. John 9 and verse 5. Look just a few verses down. John chapter 10 and verse 7. 
Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. In other words, there's only one door to get into heaven. There's not a lot of doors. There's not a lot of ways. Jesus said, anybody that's told you there's another door, there's another way is a robber and a thief. I'm the door. I'm the only way that you get in. Now, either that is true or it's not. If it's not true, he's not Messiah. If he's not Messiah, he can't save us. Because he hasn't fulfilled the prophecies of Scripture. I believe he's fulfilled the prophecies of Scripture. I believe it's what it says it is. John chapter 10 and verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Buddha didn't die for his followers. Mohammed didn't die for his followers. Joseph Smith didn't die for his followers. Jesus died for those who would come after him. Chapter 11 and verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. That's the song that was sung earlier. We, we die, but we don't die the second death. <laughs> To pass from this life to the next, you go through death, but it's just life abundant and life more real and life more excellent and life more full of joy with Christ. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. That's our hope. Chapter 11, I mean chapter 15 and verse 1. Chapter 15 and verse 1. I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. In other words, we abide in the one who is, we are attached. We're a branch. He's the vine. We're rooted in Christ. Chapter 18 and verse 37. Chapter 18 and verse 37. By the way, I love to hear pages turning. <laughs> that just, I, I, I don't know, I don't know what angels' wings sound like, but I think pages and Bibles turning sounds a lot like angels' wings. Because I tell you, people that, that are not into their Bible are easily deceived uh, by false teachers. And when you're reading your Bible, you can look at it and say, that's either right or I don't know where he got that. <laughs> John 18 and verse 37. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you're the king? Jesus said, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So John is writing an apologetic on the I am sayings, but he also deals with seven signs that prove that Jesus is the Son of God. First of all, the first one was his first miracle, changing the water into wine. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. The first miracle of Jesus was at a wedding. It was a festive time. People that paint Jesus as this sourpuss that walked around and putting a lot of rules on people, they've been reading too much about the Pharisees. They haven't read enough about Jesus. Second was the healing of the royal officer's son, chapter 4. The healing of the officer's son. 
The third is the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. The healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. Now, you can go into Jerusalem and you can see that pool today. It is a very deep pool. And the lame and the sick would uh, lay by that pool hoping that the waters would be stirred. That is a very, very deep pool. It's empty now. But uh, you can go there and see where this man would have been healed and would have been laying by those waters and would have said, there's no one to help me. By the time I get there, it's over. <laughs> and Jesus did a miraculous healing of this man by this very pool that you see pictured there. There's the feeding of the 5,000, which again, remember, is the only one, one of the only two that are mentioned in all four Gospels. The feeding of the 5,000, chapter 6. Walking on the water, that's the second one that's in all four Gospels. That's in chapter 6, verses 16 through 21. The healing of the man born blind, chapter 9. Greatest message I ever heard on that passage was by Ron Dunn. On uh, not why, but what now. Uh, it was the greatest message I ever heard on, on John chapter 9. And then raising Lazarus from the dead, chapter 11, verses 1 through 45. Now, let's look at the life of Christ as the central person of the Gospels and of human history. First of all, Jesus existed before time began. Go back to John chapter 1. Go back to John chapter 1. Remember, John, Jesus said in John chapter 8, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus said, I, I was here before Abraham. And you got to know that that just messed with the minds of some people. Yeah. <laughs> How was he here before Abraham? That, that guy's just about 30 years old and Abraham's been dead for thousands of years. I mean, how in the world was he here? Because he was pre-existent. That's what the, the first verses of the Gospel of John are some of the greatest verses that have ever been written. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. Now, how does Genesis start? In the beginning, God. In the beginning was the Word. So guess what? In the beginning, God. In the beginning was the Word. So in the beginning, the Word was God. Right? Because he says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. That's a reference to creation. We have people today who say, well, the creation story is not valid. It's not real. Uh, the, the world is five billion years old. Really? Congratulations. You just revealed that you haven't read your Bible. He says, He was in the beginning, and though all things came into being through Him. So, listen, if you say, well, I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe in the first three chapters of Genesis, you don't believe in Jesus. Because Jesus said, I was the one that did it. So now... To deny creation, listen, to listen to evolution and to deny creation is to call John and Jesus liars. To say that the Son of God is a liar because he did not say anything different than what John is recording for us here. So he says, he was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Not even the pond scum from which you evolved. <laughs> In him was life. 
And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, I want you to look at that little phrase in the beginning and make a note there if you would. It, it means in the beginning that never had a beginning. That's what that word means. In the beginning that never had a beginning. He's just giving us a point of reference in time so we can kind of get a handle on it. But what he's saying is, but before time, there was eternity. After time, there will be eternity. Well, when did eternity start? It's always been. When's eternity going to end? Never going to end. It's always been, always will be. Well, when did God come into existence? Always has. Well, how do you know? Because he said he did. So you either got to believe that or you got to think people that believe that are wacko. But that's what God said. He said he was in the beginning with God. He was God. And he was in the beginning that never had a beginning. Christ was not a created being. Christ was the creator of all created things. So he existed before time. He came in the fullness of time. That's Galatians 4.4, which we looked at in the last message. And there are three factors. Remember when Galatians 4.4 says that he came in the fullness of time. There are three factors that contributed to that phrase, the fullness of time. Number one, Alexander the Great spreading the use of the Greek language. Alexander the Great spreading the use of the Greek language. Everyone in the known world was Hellenized, if you will. That's Hellenistic. They knew the Greek language. Even if their native tongue was Aramaic or whatever it might have been or Hebrew, whatever it was, everyone knew the Greek language. And so it was a common language that ran across all nations and all sects and all tribes of people. Why is that important? Because it made it easy to spread the gospel. You didn't have to go out and find a translator. You didn't have to go out and figure out what this word means in their language because people understood the Greek language. When Alexander the Great, who was not a believer, God orchestrated that Alexander the Great would rise to power at a certain time that he would try to instill Greek thought into every culture, every society that he had conquered and he had conquered the world. And when he did that, all he did was prepare the way for Jesus Christ to come and the gospel to be proclaimed. Whatever the devil thinks he's doing, God's always got one up on him. So Alexander the Great in the Greek language. Secondly, the rise of the Roman Empire, which brought laws and organized government. But most of all, the most significant contribution to the gospel of the Roman Empire, which, by the way, persecuted Christians, was the establishment of a road system where the gospel could be taken around the known world. You can go to Italy today, you can go to uh, Israel today, you can go anywhere around the Mediterranean and you can find roads that were laid before the time of Christ by the Romans and laid during the time of Christ and after the time of Christ. Why did they do that? So their armies could march quickly across any country and get to their objective. We applaud Dwight Eisenhower for creating the interstate system. Whoever he put in charge of Atlanta, we're not sure. <laughs> but we applaud him because the interstate system makes it easy for us to get across this country very quickly. 
But here the Romans built a road system for their own personal reasons, for their own profit, and for their military, and God used it to establish missionary work. Paul could have never traveled as much as he traveled without the Romans building the highway. The devil built the highway and God put the gospel on the road. That's what you need to understand about what the Romans contributed to the fullness of time. And then the Hebrews had a monotheistic faith, which is the foundation of the gospel. Into a world that had many gods, Paul came and said, you see that unknown God there? I've got something to say about him. He brought the faith and the gospel came that God was not one of many gods, but he was the one true God. The word became flesh in the fullness of time. Not only did he exist before time, not only did he come in the fullness of time, but he died in the fullness of time. At the apex of each gospel is the cross. Luke chapter 9. Let me ask you to turn there. Luke chapter 9 and verse 51. Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem. Determined. Wasn't drugged there. Wasn't forced to go. He said, I've got to go to Jerusalem. I must needs go to Jerusalem. It is my time to go to Jerusalem. Now turn to chapter 18 and verse 31. Connect chapter 9 and chapter 18 in Luke's gospel. Chapter 18 and verse 31. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him, and the third day he will rise again. Now, how do you know Jesus is the Son of God? Because he knew that the Jews weren't going to kill him, that the Romans were going to kill him. One of the saddest things that has happened in the last 2,000 years of Christian history is that Christians have blamed the Jews for the death of Christ. But it was on the order of a Gentile that Christ was crucified. The Jews couldn't do it. They had to have Pilate to collaborate with them. And so the fact that we have blamed the Jews through history for the death of Christ is not a fully factual statement because it was a Roman, a Gentile like me and like you that condemned him to go to the cross to die. And Jesus knew that he would be turned over to the Gentiles. And he knew that they would mock him, that they would mistreat him, and they would spit upon him. And after they had scourged him, they would kill him. So all the sacrifices... All the offerings, all the prophecies point to God's Son who existed before time, who came in the fullness of time, who died in the fullness of time, and who rose, and His resurrection is our hope and our promise. His resurrection is our hope and our promise. How many of y'all have been inside the empty tomb? Okay, was there anybody there besides people that were in your tour group? Any bodies, any markers, any date of birth and death, any obituaries on the wall? It's empty. It's been empty since three days after it was filled. It is empty. 
and the stone was rolled away and Christ came out and they went and observed and they evaluated and the Jews and the Romans being scared of what might happen made up lies and had people lie about what had happened those Roman soldiers would have been put to death if that body had been stolen and yet it disappeared nobody stole it it disappeared People have suggested that Jesus just swooned and fainted and went unconscious and, and he came to after the disciples got him a little medicine and bandaged up his wounds. Most people would have died before they ever got to the point where Jesus went to the cross. He didn't just swoon and pass out. He died. He gave up his life. They didn't kill him. He said it's finished and he died. He did not hang on the cross as long as most men would have hung on the cross. His bones were not broken, and so that meant he had to give up his life because typically for someone crucified, they would break their legs so they could no longer push up and try to get air, and his bones were not broken so that the prophecies might be fulfilled. And the tomb is empty today. And we have all the hope in the world that you could possibly have because that tomb is empty. There are two keys to the resurrection. First of all, Jesus rode physically. And secondly, his resurrection was a miracle. I want you to turn as we come to the conclusion to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24 and verse 5. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. Right by that, you could write Muhammad. They think Jesus is a prophet. They don't deny that Jesus Christ was born. They think he was a prophet. You can write down a lot of religions right there. Many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened for those things must take place. That is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. You could write by that another testament of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Book of Mormon. Many will arise and will mislead many because lawlessness is increased. Most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Verse 27. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then 
The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Jesus said, I'm gone, but I'll be right back. I'm coming back. I love standing on the Mount of Olives. I love looking over the city of Jerusalem. A city that has been fought over for thousands of years. That has been plundered and destroyed and built and rebuilt 25 times. On the Temple Mount today sits a mosque on both ends. The Dome of the Rock being the most famous one. But there are two mosques on the Temple Mount where the Temple of Solomon was built. Where Herod's Temple was built. Where God's glory once dwelt. You can see a little area over to the back of that mosque, the Dome on the Rock, where it is the site of the Holy of Holies, which would have been about 45 feet below that, but you can actually walk down to the level of first century ground through the rabbi's tunnel. But I love standing on the Mount of Olives and making that walk down to the Garden of Gethsemane. And I want to tell you something. There's going to come a day when that mountain, which is the most expensive cemetery in the world, there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of graves there. They don't put flowers on their graves. They put rocks on their graves. There's going to come a day when Jesus is going to descend on the Mount of Olives facing the city of David and that mountain is going to split and then there's going to be a day when Jesus is going to take his reign on this earth in a new heaven and a new earth and nothing and nobody can stop him. Whatever man designs, whatever man plans, whatever man thinks he's got control over, he has no control over when Jesus is coming back and what he's going to do when he comes back. Folks, I've read the last two chapters. We win in the end. Somebody asked Billy Graham one time, said, how do you feel about things that are going on in this world? He said, I read the first two chapters of Genesis and there was no devil. And I've read the last two chapters of Revelation and there's no devil. I'm not worried. How about you? I asked the question this morning, are you ready for his coming? Because he is coming. And I know we've all got plans. We've all got things we'd like to do. We've got things we... But could anything better happen in our lifetime than for Jesus to come? I mean, just think of what the government would have to bail out on all the stuff we left behind. <laughs> they thought bailing out GM was a problem. 
Take hundreds of millions of Christians off this planet and watch what kind of mess it is. There's a new show coming out where everybody in the earth blacks out for two minutes and 17 seconds. And they wake up and they see the future. You seen the advertisements for this show? When Jesus comes back, they're going to feel like they've blacked out for two minutes and 17 seconds. Because they're going to be pilots flying airplanes and they're going to disappear. And those planes are going to fly on until they crash. They're going to be crowded interstates and people are, drivers are going to be leaving their cars. And there are going to be massive collisions and deaths all on the highways all across America and around the world. There are going to be ships that are going to be sailing into harbors. And the captain of the ship and members of the crew are going to be gone and that ship is going to crash into the shore. There are going to be all kinds of things going on. There are going to be things that are being run by computer and there's nobody there to fix it. There's nobody there to correct it. There's nobody there to stop it. Because in one second, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, Jesus is going to come back and everything is going to change. So folks, whether we die and meet him or whether we're alive and meet him in the air, we're still going to meet him. And as my youth minister used to say when I was growing up, to all those people who said Jesus is just a crutch, James used to say, we're going to say, nanny, nanny, poop. <laughs> people say, well, you're just dogmatic. Well, when you're right, you can be dogmatic. And we're on the right side. Amen. We're on the winning side. We're on the praise side. We're on the great side. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Gatt. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening. And have a great day.